Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. Most of the time, I don't think there is a God. In fact, I don't think there is a God uh, when I think about it rationally. But that said... Now, Gareth's new book, How Not to Be Afraid, is one that I read cover to cover maybe three weeks ago. Um, he sent me a file. And one quote I pulled out of it uh, that I'd like to read here and this is by Gareth Higgins, and here it is. I grew up afraid, and it took me until my mid-30s to conceive that there were other ways to live, that happiness is possible even when you've experienced so much shaming at the hands of a religious and political culture that even you become convinced that you deserve the hatred. So let me just kick this off. Um, I'm Frank Schaefer, and you're, I think, watching this on my Facebook page. Uh, I'm talking with my old friend, Gareth Higgins, uh, who I've known for 13, 14 years, and we've been very good friends. Um, Gareth has launched uh, a book that should be showing somewhere on this site here. Gareth, tell them the title of the book. It's, it's, I'll show you the book itself. It's called How Not to Be Afraid. Yeah, and and Gareth's book is in the shops now, right? It's out. It is, yeah, yeah. But it's <clears> officially <throat> published tomorrow, but it's available. Yeah, and I I read this cover to cover, and I pulled some quotes out. I want to start with one here, uh, but first I'll just talk a bit more about you. Gareth is a a, a multi talented, very interesting person. He is um, an author. Uh, he is a film critic and film buff. Uh, does all sorts of movie-related stuff, seminars, has people on. In fact, you guys should all, before we're done here, Gareth, tell them how they can go and get on your Facebook and all the rest of it so they can follow what you do because Gareth does these incredible uh, public forums. You can sign up and do stuff on movies. Um, and he is a very interesting person when it comes to to, to film and to writing, but also... Um, has had a very long, interesting personal journey related to the Christian community that I come out of, the evangelical past. Similar journey to mine, different in some ways, but enough so we get each other and um, uh, have, have done things together. One of them was that Gareth founded the Wild Goose Festival, some of you may know of or have been to. Uh, I, was, I have been a speaker there um, for every Wild Goose Festival but one, and Gareth was the founder. He brought me into the Wild Goose Festival at the very beginning. Uh, we met at another festival, music and poetry, art, religion, spirituality in Great Britain called Greenbelt, where Gareth said, if I ever start something in the States, will you come and participate? And I did, and that was the Wild Goose Festival. So Gareth started it. I was one of his first speakers. That's how we kind of the first job we did together of work. And since then, we've batted a lot of ideas back and forth, um, everything from books to movies to spirituality to our journeys out of evangelical Christianity and so forth and so on. Now, Gareth's new book, How Not to Be Afraid, is one that I read cover to cover maybe three weeks ago. Um, he sent me a file. And one quote I pulled out of it uh, that I'd like to read here, and this is by Gareth Higgins. And here it is. I grew up afraid, and it took me until my mid-30s to conceive that there were other ways to live, that happiness is possible even when you've experienced so much shaming at the hands of a religious and political culture that even you become convinced that you deserve the hatred. And I thought that was really 
a wonderfully written line, Gareth, but also I was trying to find something that would not summarize the book, but as it were, give a little window into your thinking and your experience and your soul that some of the people on Facebook, my friends on Facebook, would share with you because many of them have had very different kinds of journeys out of some sort of fundamentalist religious background in which they have brought all sorts of sense of shame with them. And then I have many other people online here who don't come from that background, but who share one aspect of your life and my life. And that is they look back understanding that this has been a journey. And um, the, the shaming you talk about uh, comes, I think, when you change your mind about things you once held very close to your soul. And also when you have abandoned certain things that have cut you off from people you grew up with friends and community. And even though you've changed your minds, as I would put this, that doesn't mean your emotions have changed. So I'd like you, I'm going to read that quote one more time for folks who have just come in while we've been doing this introduction. This is Gareth Higgins, my friend, the author of How Not to Be Afraid, which I hope you all run out and buy. And um, here's a quote that I think summarizes the reason for the book and the, the sort of window into his soul from where it comes from. I grew up to be afraid and it took me until my mid thirties to conceive that there were other ways to live. That happiness is possible even when you've experienced so much shaming at the hands of a religious and political culture that even you become convinced that you deserve the hatred. So Gareth, I'd like you to riff on that a little bit and um, just talk about that thought and where it takes you in this book. Yeah, thanks for having me. And um, uh, that's that what you just read to me it speaks about the fact that i grew up in a society in the north of ireland where we had this civil conflict we had violence we had killing and um it directly affected my family directly affected and there was this story in our culture that we needed to be afraid we needed to be suspicious and there was genuine risk genuine danger Mm-hmm. and enormous suffering um but at the same time there were incredibly courageous creative people who were trying to transform the conflict in nonviolent one and to bind the wounds of people who were suffering to and to bring an to bring an end to the violence and mm-hmm. then build a different kind of society going forward that was always going on a lot yeah. of it had to be done quietly but but because of the way I think our brains work, our media culture works, and our political culture works, mm. we dominated the story with the negative fear mm. stuff. So that was mm. the external thing that was that was going on. And then on the inside of me, I was growing up in a culture that uh, that uh, men who loved men were sinful or diseased uh, or even demon-possessed. And as a boy and a teacher, I was growing up with these huge questions about my sexuality and my sexuality, and I had nowhere to take those questions mm-hmm. other than to a religious culture that at best would say, would feel sorry for me, right? Yeah. Like it, it's yeah. most generous. It, it pitied me. Um, and... Uh, I didn't know that there were other ways to think. I didn't know uh, that there were deeply faithful Christians, and I come from the tradition, who would have completely affirmed me, who who would have helped me figure out those questions in a way that was affirming of who I uh, uh, really am. And that's what I mean about it. You know, it took thirties to really truly begin to internalize, frankly, that that. If if you are uh, a person who identifies uh, as I'll just use the word queer as a kind of a catch-all, if, mm. if, if that's who you truly are, beautiful, fantastic, amazing, that's a gift from God. And if you're a person who identifies as straight, that's who you are, fantastic, beautiful, great, that's a gift uh, from from God. Yeah, uh, love between human beings is, can't be anything other than a gift from God. I just did have voices in my life as mm. a child and a teenager. Uh, that I at least that I knew about, that I could hear that from. Mm. And so internalized, I had this fear on the inside too. So um, you got this external threat, 
but, but you know, the society is polarized and there's danger. And then this final thing that says there's something wrong with me. Mm. And I don't think you need to have grown up in Northern Ireland and to have grown up with questions about your sexuality to identify with what I yeah, just said. Exactly. I think and lots and of us grow up with it. There's a sense of like, there's almost like a wall around us that's got the, you know, the, I can't remember what it's called, that horrible torture device from the Middle Ages where it was a suit of armor that had spikes pointing inwards. Yeah, the Iron Maiden. The the Iron Maiden. It was almost like you lived in a psychic Iron Maiden and you knew, I got to stay away from the boundary. I can't go over that wall. Right. And when you're around folk who don't, and I, I think for the most part, these are folk who are deeply, sincerely connected uh, to what they believe to be true. They just, they're just, they're, they're maybe scared to question it. Mm. And they're, they're, they're acting in good faith a lot of the time. Um, but those messages reinforce the idea that I deserve those spikes. You know, one thing that interests me about the book as well, because I want people to get the right impression of it. Um, you know, Gareth does draw, as any good author does, on his own experiences in life. And some of that involves the suffering of living in a war-torn period of history where people are getting killed and shot all around you in Northern Ireland. Um, similar background that people like Bono come from with you too, uh, and, and is featured in the work. But like Bono, actually, uh, Gareth is a tremendous optimist. And I want to read you another quote that I think is so interesting to read in the context of um, the book as it also goes through people's alienation and suffering coming out of these hyper-religious backgrounds with nowhere to turn. By the way, you know, you come from that story, uh, the kind of the twist in your life being the kind of queer uh, ID ID developing as you grow, you know, the twist in my life being that I walk away from the evangelical far right, which was kind of a, a success and money machine for our family for a while. But the same sense of, okay, now I'm cut off from my own people is something I totally get. And as you said moments ago, this has nothing to do with being uh, queer or trans or gay or straight uh, man or woman. It doesn't, that, the point is, this is an experience that those on a journey away from certain backgrounds share. One thing that I think people need to know about your book, and one reason I think it's, it's so important is because it's also very optimistic in a wonderful way. I want to read you this. Look beneath your fear and you will discover what it is you really care about, what you wish to protect, people, places, things, hopes, dreams, aggression, shame, and disconnection, even as attempts at making a better life for me or a better world for all of us don't work. But as we expand our circle of caring to include all people, and this is a big point, as we expand our circle of caring to include all people, all places, all creation, we discover that all our fears are shared and that all our cares come from the same place. Come to understand your fear and you may find that we're all just trying to figure out how to love. And I think that is such a tremendous statement. You know, I've spent the last four years, well, five now, warning about Donald Trump, fighting Donald Trump. I'm Trump fatigued. The Trump year is done. Now we're moving on to somewhere else. But this idea that common ground isn't necessarily found in shared politics or, you know, a triangulation of issues. But this, I think, is a real key to your book. But it's also I'd like to hear you talk about it. Come to understand your fear and you may find that we're all just trying out, trying to figure out how to love. And I think there's a lot of people running around with MAGA hats who thinks the election was stolen here in the States. That if you were ever going to connect with those folks, figure out how to love would be the one place we could all stop, talk still if they were open to that discussion. And I found that tremendously moving. So, you know, do you, do you feel that quote? I feel that quote kind of represents the grand direction of your book. And then there's many more details and examples yeah. and stories. But to me, if I was trying to tell somebody, what is Gareth's book? about how not to be afraid. It would be this, come to understand your fear and you may find that we're all just trying to figure out how to love. And for me, that says everything. That is the package. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack. 
it has to be said, which can be found at frankschafer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. Well, let me say something about love, because, I, uh, yeah, I, 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 think all, I think every action <laughs> that every human takes yeah. is, a, is, an, is, is an attempt at getting their needs met. And Marshall Rosenberg, who, who coined the whole nonviolent communication movement, says that there are uh, there's no such thing as an illegitimate need. There are just more or less legitimate ways of getting your needs mm. met. And one of the chief needs is, is you know, we, we need we need food, water, air and shelter. And shelter is, is actually a very expansive term because it includes mm. things like a sense of physical security. And that and that's got to do with boundaries. Right. And mm -hmm. when people feel that their boundaries are being violated, they often lash out backwards. No, um, there are illegitimate ways to maintain your own boundaries. Right. Like, mm -hmm. like uh, by hurting other people, that's not a legitimate way to maintain your mm -hmm. boundaries. I'm not talking about self-defense. That's for that's a conversation for another time. Uh, but aggressing upon somebody else in order to maintain your boundaries um, is probably not a legitimate way uh, to do it. The, the use of the word love is important because, uh, you know, in our popular culture, love is um, cheesy, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a beautiful definition of love by M. Scott Peck, which is something like love is extending yourself for the sake of another, for the sake of the benefit of another. And so my friend Mike Riddell in New Zealand once wrote a play in which he has his main character, who's like a, an Ezekiel type prophet uh, in New Zealand in, in the 1970s, a, a real historical figure, a poet mm -hmm. called James K. Baxter, saying, uh, when I say love, I'm talking about the kind of love that, uh, uh, that defines a stranger going next door mm -hmm, to someone they've mm -hmm. never met before and bathing their hemorrhoids when they're not able to bathe their own hemorrhoids, right? And I use that yeah. as deliberate, not that, I mean, I don't think people are shocked by it, but like that's loving service, okay? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so um, that's the first thing about love. The, the thing about, if you ask yourself, what am I afraid of? What's underneath my fear? Mm. You will find out what you truly care about. Yeah. And yes, it can manifest politically in terms of partisanship and so on and so forth. But a layer down and a layer down and a layer down takes us to you and I, Frank, want the same things mm. and we fear the same things. And the only way we're going to be able to get the things that we want in our highest selves is by helping us, mm. helping each other to get there. Yeah. Let me say one more thing about the complete inevitability of uh of fear fear is a natural biological process it's an mm -hmm. evolutionary inevitability and in limited circumstances it's necessary it actually helps sure. protect us i'm thinking about things like um our bodies know don't walk too close to the edge of that cliff yeah or put your seatbelt on or don't put your foot too hard down on the accelerator those are examples of healthy necessary fear without which we 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 would i mean we'd all be dying a lot more quickly yeah than than we do or hurting other people the problem is that our brains have not evolved to keep pace with the massive shift in our cultural reality particularly as mediated through the internet where yeah. we are now bombarded by information that our brains can't tell the difference between yeah. propaganda, lies, wisdom, and let's call them accurate statistics. Yeah. The, only, the only thing uh, that, that we can do and the thing that we must do <clears throat> is ask ourselves, what is the story I'm telling about this information that's coming mm -hmm. my way? 
I think the world has gotten too big and too small at the same time. Mm. By too by too big, what I mean is, um, we now know more about more things happening in more places than we've ever mm-hmm. known, and we know yeah. about it instantly. And by too small, I mean because we carry around these propaganda information statistical yeah connection separation and wisdom devices in our pocket yeah it can feel like all these terrible things are happening to us right now yeah or or right next door the only way to to get beyond that is through practices that have served human beings for thousands of years Really simple. I'll just I'll just say about two different practices, and then maybe we can look at some questions that have been coming through in the in the sure. chat here, uh, or go to what you want to ask next. There's two kinds of practices. One is individual practices that help us become healthier emotionally, psychologically, yeah. spiritually. Yeah. And the primary one I want to advocate for is to slow down. Mm, absolutely. And the second is to develop a core set of relationships mm-hmm. with a handful of people who you know are on the same journey toward emotional mm-hmm. mental spiritual and political maturity yeah by which i mean we're not just uh sniping at each other we're not driven by hate we 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 we, we allow ourselves to express our anger in a healthy way so that we can yeah. move through the action that we're called to take to build a better kind of society. Mm. Um, and that's also a form of slowing down. Yeah, slowing down. I, I, I thought for a while that there should be two Facebooks. Um, there should be one Facebook, which is private for us and our friends who know us, where we can just rant and vent what we need to do, like we would do with a therapist. And yeah. then there's the other Facebook where we publish the best thing we know that we're capable of and we mm. try to call other people to their best good selves point, yeah. good point. you know um, i want to get to those questions i'm going to ask you to to read a few choose a few before we do i just want to mention something i don't know how many uh folks out there uh, have read any of eric Fromm, who wrote on psychology but you know his whole thing was to explain in his book the heart of man what he called malignant narcissism which of course mm-hmm. defines so much of our own age now, um, and 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 you're talking about getting away from that. Um, the you know you have a line saying there is a constant tension between what the dominant culture and economic system ba- value, and what nourishes the soul. And of course, the dominant culture's value is malignant narcissism. That is what our culture is about, and we saw the epitome of that with the Trump presidency, but that he's almost a caricature of that, but in the wider consumer culture. But you have a really great line. The beginning of the cure for narcissism is the same as the beginning of the cure for all fear. Be kind to someone. And I know that sounds like a platitude, but if you really think about it, it actually is true. And it also, I find my own life is a cure for depression. You know, best thing that's happened to me in the last few years that I talk about a lot is doing the childcare for my three youngest grandchildren. And before we came to do this, I had a little window between our test call between us. And when I came to do this, Jeannie, my wife's going to pick the kids up at school this afternoon because I'm doing this. But in between testing it, my preparation for this was to go cook them their school snack. And the funny thing is that did more to calm me down and get me ready to do this and put me in a good frame of mind to talk to my old friend Gareth than if I had been trying to do something clever, scribbling notes, whatever. And it wasn't a big deal because, you know, being kind to your grandchildren is not a virtue, it's a pleasure, but you get what I'm saying. So I'm going to read that again. The beginning of the cure for narcissism, which I say afflicts our culture, a la Eric from malignant narcissism, is the same as the beginning of the cure for all fear. Be kind to someone. And, and I love that theme that runs through your book. Because um, especially coming through the COVID epidemic and then the Trump years before that and everything going on, one other thing I just want to point out, and then we'll get to some questions, is that your book is much more optimistic than I think people would think. It's not all just about inner finding inner peace within one. It's also reaching out to other people. And I like something you wrote here. It is also important to learn to speak about forgiveness in ways that honor its complexity and the pain that stimulates the invitation to forgiveness in the first place. Much is spoken about forgiveness, little understood, and too often survivors of great violations may be shamed 
or even re-traumatized by the pressure to embrace the person responsible for the violation or deny the gravity of their impact. I think you bring so much um, compassionate, empathetic wisdom to that sentence. And I think there's so many people out there, again, with many, many different kinds of backgrounds, even those on the right wing who say politically, you and I might disagree with who would get that. So I don't know if you want to address that or go to some questions. We should definitely leave time for some questions. Sure. Um, it's over to you, Gareth. This is your your thing on your book. Well, um, yeah, thank you, for, thank you for bringing up the forgiveness question um, because it suddenly gets talked about a lot in the society that I'm that I'm from. And I think that uh, I think it has to be handled with immense mm -hmm. tenderness. Uh, I think that there have been uh, occasions when someone who's just experienced a, a, a terrible violation, being pressured, you know, or feeling pressure to uh, forgive. Yeah. And, um, and, and there were people in this society who I think were just incredibly courageous. You, you would have, mm -hmm. uh, during the, the active years of the conflict here, sometimes you'd have what, what were called tit-for-tat killings. Mm -hmm. So somebody would be murdered in, in one community and then somebody else would be murdered from the other community as yes. a revenge thing and you would often have the families of the of the first victim would come out on tv and say i want no retaliation you know yeah um and and i just think that you know when you're living with that degree of shock and terror and grief that's incredible even just to say that i want no retaliation because actually yeah. it's, a, it's a biological um it's a very natural thing that when something as awful as that happens, that your body yeah. goes into fight mode. You actually want to destroy the person who's done sure. this to you. It's a totally natural experience. Yeah. And that's why, you know, over many centuries, we've developed the criminal justice system. And yeah. hopefully the criminal justice system will continue to evolve toward being a restorative justice system in which yeah. people who... Uh, cause harm are restrained from doing so without yeah. revenge being taken on them and the people who survived it and the loved ones of those survivors will be properly cared for by the community but mm -hmm. the reason we have a criminal justice system uh, is to get in between the biological programming that leads people to kill in revenge yeah you know um, you know, um, I, I want to get to the questions in a minute here but before I do in case folks have just sort of tuned into this let me reintroduce Gareth who's talking I'm Frank Schaefer, you're on my Facebook page, so you probably can figure out who I am. Gareth Higgins is an old friend of mine. I first met him 13, 14 years ago in the UK, where we were both participating in something called the Greenbelt Festival, which is a music and spirituality festival. Gareth is the creator of the Wild Goose Festival here in the United States, at which I've spoken many times. He and I are very good friends and have collaborated on, on numbers of projects. We are talking about his new book, available now, uh, brand new book, um, How Not to Be Afraid. And I've been reading some quotes from this. If you've missed part of this, um, Ernie, Greg, my dear friend who does my website wrangling for me is going to post everything up as a video. So you can go back and check this if there's something you want to see again, uh, or if you missed a bit of it. So Gareth, we were going to take a look at some questions that have come in from yeah. folks who have joined Well, us. there's a question here that's connected to um, uh, what I was going to say about uh, forgiveness. The question is, how do you handle it when the violation is constant and there is no repentance? Now, obviously, I, I don't know the specific situation uh, yeah. that this beloved person is speaking to. And so say this with uh, with trepidation, because what, what I, you know, I don't know the situation. So, sure. so please, as you hear my response, this is a general response. And hopefully um, that it's hopefully it'll be helpful in some yeah. way yeah i think that the forgiveness journey uh, actually begins before the violation occurs and that is by human beings listening to the voice of love calling us to go deeper within and to be healed from the wounds or to go on a healing journey um so they're slowing down our reactions to everything mm. but when a violation occurs the first thing that should happen is uh, that the community should try to prevent any further harm from taking place, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, if you're in a situation violation, the first thing I would I would say to you is try to try to find some people who will help you get to safety. 
Yeah. You know, and that might mean literally, you know, I think of situations where people perhaps need to leave their homes and also think of less toxic, less dangerous situations where yeah. you just need to withdraw from a relationship for a period of time. But don't do yeah. it on your own. Seek support from other emotionally yeah. healthy people. Help get you to safety. Right. Um, then 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 we move into the accountability phase of can we. Can we nonviolently restrain this person from causing any more harm? Restrain them in a way that minimizes harm uh, mm -hmm. to them. And then we move toward things like reparations for uh, the person who's been violated, amends by the person who did the violating, and whatever accountability needs to, to look like. And that, that's the theory, kind of that's the ideal mm. scenario. Yeah. At some point in the future, if you go down that journey, you might get point where you feel like it's legitimate for you to say i forgive person hmm. you might get there and maybe you might go further to the point where you can yeah be in relationship with that person again yeah but this is really really important there is no should there is no must in this the must and the should that's been put on people who've suffered yeah doubles the trauma right it doubles the trauma yeah. so if you're coming in a situation where you've been violated the my first responsibility to you is to is to you get away from further violation protected mm -hmm. from that and then also perhaps i need to help you not take revenge mm -hmm. you know um and say look we're gonna get we're gonna get some other healthier method to to, to help restrain the uh, the revenge piece here. No, if we're talking of global issues of entire political cultural movement sure. that that continue and, and won't and won't repent, I actually do think that the serenity prayer, uh, uh, as as popularized within the twelve step movement, and I think it may have been Reinhold Niebuhr who wrote it. I'm not. I'm not sure. God grant me the serenity uh, to accept the things I cannot change to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm -hmm. That does not mean I should stand in front of the steamroller coming to roll me over and just stand there unless I have absolutely no other option. Right? Yeah. So to change the things I can means run away from the steamroller. If, if it's coming to get you, go and ask for, for help. I remember one time, it's a very, very minor issue. Um, when I was a teenager, a couple of kids who I felt scared of, you know, um, just, you know, kid, kids who kind of carried a bit of a, a bully sense about them. Yeah. And I came across them as I was walking and they started to follow me. We were probably 13, 14 and, and you know, and they were probably going to hit me. Yeah. And I, I was really scared and I started to walk away from them and I climbed over the fence to this house of a strain because it, it looked like the only way to get to safety uh, to, to go to this house. And the guy who owned the house opened the door and he looked at me and says, what are you doing garden? Right? Like, yeah. no, now I'm getting bullied by, bo by both ends. And I said something like, they're chasing me. And he said, you come in. And he and his, and his spouse took me in and then he drove me home. It's oh, a yeah. simple, simple example. And you know, I don't know what's going on in your life or, or anybody's situation at any given time, but the request for support, even if it's just from, even if it's from God, there's no other human yeah. beings there or from the universe. Yeah. That's one of the things we can do to change our circumstances. I cannot, I can't be responsible for whether or not somebody repents. I can't. One thing I bring up is that, you know, a lot of the things that I've run into, but also just folks who are on this Facebook site who come on various journeys from various kinds of communities to various kinds of battles of their own have found. And that is that, you know, and a piece of advice I would have of gratis that doesn't have to do with repentance, forgiveness, and what we should or ought to do, or all these pressures is just recognize that sometimes when we walk away from what I would call institutional prejudice against us, whether we're in an evangelical community and we discover that you know, as we've grown up, we found we're gay or trans or whatever it might be, or whether we have bought into a belief system where, you know, the very book that we revere, whether that's the Bible or the Quran or, or various Hindu writings, whatever it may be, contains something that just seems to be incredibly oppressive. 
you know, you have to be realistic about the price you pay for walking away, but it's still worth walking away. In other words, yes, you know, we lose friends and community. We lose the patterns of our life that meant so much. But on the other hand, if we're always compromising with the oppression of various systems that we've been born into, whether it's a Pentecostal church somewhere or, or you know, whatever it may be, um, then we can never get past that. We're always in this cycle of being, you know, uh, disrespected or oppressed or whatever. So I would just urge people to face the fact that there's a price for the journey. There's a price for walking away. You will pay that price. Some of it is irreparable, but what Gareth is saying makes so much sense because when we, when we start concentrating on what we can do in terms of taking care of other people who have suffered similarly and or in different ways, and we bring the empathy that we've learned through our own suffering to that. I think there's a, there's a big answer in that. Just pause again. This is Gareth Higgins. We're talking with about his new book, uh, How Not to Be Afraid, and it's just come out. I've been making some quotes about it. Gareth is in Northern Ireland as we speak here. I'm in Northern Massachusetts. And we're talking about his new book. Gareth, did you have some more questions that people had sent in? Well, I wanted... Hey, you. Yeah, you listening. Do you like personal finance or real estate? Are you itching to build wealth and create a better life for yourself or your family? Then you need to come check out the Life, Money, and More podcast with real estate agent, YouTuber, and actor, Sage Weiss. This isn't your average finance show. We dive deep and do not sugarcoat topics around money and life. The Life, Money, and More podcast releases two episodes a week just for you because we're all about helping you win in this crazy world we live in. Come join the thousands of listeners on the Life, Money, and More podcast. Just respond to something you just said. There is a price, but there is also a prize. Yes, treasure. Uh, and that is, you get to own your own story and be authentic. Yeah. Even though it might be a bit lonely for a while. And it was very scary for me to yeah. leave the religious tradition that I had been brought up in because it was also my primary community too. Yeah. I was really scared. I was scared that like I was walking away from God and that I was going to be without friends. Mm. Um, and, and there was still more pain to come. And the, yeah. and the truth is, like, if we are, if we live in a non-authentic way, um, we're actually going to hurt other people. And mm. I hurt other people. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I hurt other people because I had internalized this belief about myself. Mm. And, and then, you know, be, uh, being driven by fear to yeah. not be authentic. Yeah. Authenticity can be really can the joy authenticity can be really scary but yeah. living in the light of it is an amazing treasure an absolutely amazing yeah. treasure um yeah the the i'll say something else about um this thing about aggression and heroism mm. um and someone in the chat saying one can walk away from organized religion without losing one's spirituality absolutely absolutely yeah. In fact, you know, you know, it was it was it was a priest who said to me once, a wonderful uh, Filipino uh, activist priest called Carl Gaspar on a boat on the Hudson River uh, in 2001, six weeks before 9-11. Uh, I was in, in New York and at a conference on the relationship between images of God and attitudes to violence. Yeah. And um, uh, and I was in a turmoil of 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 faith questions and should i leave should i stay and all that and, and father carl gaspar took my head took my face in his hands on on the on the boat and he actually slapped my face with you know a little more than gentleness <laughs> and it was like wake up and he was like gareth it's okay to leave for a while yeah okay to leave and not not quite know where you're going yet you don't yeah, need to yeah. know the end of the journey just yeah. take this next step you'll be fine you'll be fine yeah. and the, the truth is you know i'm i mean, i'm now married to a, a a pastor and i'm i'm back in the church because i find that uh, uh there's 
there are forms of spirituality of Christian spirituality that are deeply committed yeah. to the path of Jesus, to the teachings of Jesus, but they also don't ask you to leave your brain at the door. They yeah. also don't ask you to leave your sense of who should belong at the door. Yeah. And they stimulate the mind and the heart and they invite us to deepening levels of intimacy and connection as community and service to the world. Here's yeah. the thing I want yeah. to say about uh, um, uh, a friend of mine sparked an idea in me a couple of weeks ago that I've been thinking about every day. And the idea is about Rambo, right? Sylvester yeah. Stallone, yeah. The, the Rambo archetype, the big bulky guy with the heavy artillery and how Rambo represents a certain kind of hero archetype in U.S. American culture, Western culture. Yeah. Certainly the dominant hero narrative in the 1980s was the Rambo idea. Yeah. And um, Rambo wants to protect the vulnerable. Rambo wants to uh, protect vulnerable people, but he yeah. does it through mowing down everybody who gets in his way. Yeah. Right. Um, I think Rambo is one third of the way to being right. And he's two thirds wrong. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, because a hero, according to my friend Chance, a hero is someone who creates the for others. But a truer hero is someone who creates safety for others, even others that they don't like, hmm. while minimizing harm yeah. to anybody else, including harm that could come to other people from me. So if I want to be a hero, the first step is to care about people who are vulnerable. The second is to uh, take steps to protect vulnerable people, to create safety for them without harming anybody, including people I don't like, and being sure to take steps that people won't be harmed by me, for me yeah. to do my own inner work. Yeah. So that the brokenness in me and the selfishness in me, which is never going to be, it's, it's never going to be eradicated. Yeah. But that I at least get it under control and make myself accountable to other emotionally intelligent people who can yeah. point out to me, hey, Gareth, or hey, Frank, there's times when you really hurt people, you need to rail that back in, or this yeah. is your gift, this is your beautiful gift, let us find your gift in uh, to flame. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the, 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 the other third. If the first third is protect vulnerable people, the second third is minimize harm. Yeah. The third third, and Rambo definitely doesn't have this, or it doesn't manifest in a healthy way. Yeah. The third third is to radically commit to fiercely loving myself. Mm. And I'll tell you why. I mean, we hear this, you know, love your neighbor, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And we pay very little attention to the loving yourself bit. And it's partly because we don't want to be too egocentric or prideful. And honestly, I think it's partly because we just don't have good models. A lot, there's not a lot of good models in our society of people who truly love themselves. Yeah. Um, let, me, let me name the paradox of this. You would say to anybody you know who's suffering, who thinks they're less than, anybody who's dealing mm. with low self-esteem or, or heavy self-criticism, you would point out to them how beautiful they are, right? You would tell them it's okay for you to love yourself. Mm. Tell them all their wonderful qualities. Why on earth would you expect them to believe you if you aren't applying the same principles to yourself? Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't... It, it, I think we find ourselves hard, the hardest of all to love, but at least to commit to the principle. Yeah. So why this matters is just two sentences. And then I'd love to hear more from you and we can go to, to more um, conversation in, in the chat. Um, why this matters is because the Rambo archetypes dominated our culture for too long. And Rambo is actually motivated by concern. He just hasn't been shown how to manifest his strength as an act of service mm. and to love himself first. Mm. On the other hand, I think there are millions of people, and this is, I think is why you call me an optimist. I don't think I'm an optimist. I think I'm a realist about what's actual in the world. Mm. There are millions of people, possibly hundreds of millions of people, maybe billions of people, who care of protecting vulnerable people mm -hmm. and who don't want to harm anybody in that task. So they've already checked two of the boxes where Rambo's only checked one of them. 
the third box, the self-love box, it turns out if people aren't going to believe us if we tell them to love themselves because they see that we don't love ourselves, it's actually in your own interests to love yourself so that you can model it for the people who you feel the most compassion for. And I just think there are lots of us out there who need to be validated. Yeah. We don't feel as strong or as brave or as effective as Rambo. I actually think we're safer and healthier than Rambo and could do with a dose of spending time with some people who are tuned into this more tender version of strength. You have in the book a quote that sort of relates to what you're saying here. Your mission is to heal yourself and others through being of service honoring the ecosystem, your neighbor and yourself, and devoting yourself to love. And of course, you're talking about self-love there as well. You know, one thing that I think you get right in the book, uh, a quote that I like very much is, meaninglessness comes from individualism and dispersal. There are a million, a million meaningful things about each of us, but because we live in a culture dominated by fallacies about violence and success alike, we inflate our fears and diminish our structure of meaning in comparison with others. And then that fits in with what you're saying. The other thing I just want to go back to, we're talking with Gareth Higgins, the author of um, the author of How to Not Be Afraid. I'm not to be afraid. Not, not to be afraid. I knew I was going to screw this up. Um, I can't even remember. You're That's so good. funny. I People ask me about the titles of my own books, and I go to Amazon while I'm talking to them <laughs> on an interview, click on it to make sure I don't screw the title up. So I got to just terminal dyslexic, start to finish. One part of my journey that never changed was my dyslexia. I, and just titles are terrifying to me. Um, but anyway, well, my, I, just to go back to something, you know, you've sort of come back, you, you married a pastor, uh, Brian, um, terrific person and so forth. Uh, I didn't marry a pastor. I married Jeannie uh, many, many years ago. We've been together now 51 years. My journey has taken me to the place where, as you know, I call myself an atheist who believes in God, as in, Intellectually speaking, I am an atheist. I have moved completely away from my evangelical faith as well as all religious claims. But uh, I was raised in a way that leaves me praying every morning because it isn't a question of, oh, this whole only God can fill. Most of the time, I don't think there is a God. In fact, I don't think there is a God uh, when I think about it rationally. But that said, there is no question in my mind that um, I not just benefit from, but absolutely depend on the emotional, spiritual life that I have. And I have a sense of direction in my life. And where I feel it most may seem a little ironic to some people, it's in, it's in my, my failures in that as I look back over my life, the thing I'm most grateful for now are the things that did not work out that I wanted most at the time. And in that, I really see a pattern, if not of divine guidance, then uh, definitely love, um, but the love has always, for me, been the thing that I wanted most that didn't work. Case in point, uh, make it in the movie business. I made four shitty feature films, and they're still out there somewhere, but they all came within just a hair's breadth of doing a little better, and then I would be in that industry, and I would not have written any books, and I would not be married, because I'd be, I would have screwed around and slept with all the girls coming in in the 1980s and 90s in that environment of casting and all the rest of it, who knows, you know, uh, uh, where that would have all gone. But I didn't have the moral fortitude to hold ego in check, um, sexual lust, uh, the desire to have a family. At the time, I thought I could manage it all. Looking back, I realized that, you know, you're always on this kind of knife edge and that uh, you better be careful what you wish for. So like you, I find a spiritual direction in my life, but stated in more intellectual terms, you know, atheism is something that I think is truer than belief. And that question that I have for you before we get to anybody else is, do you, you know, where you're at today, having written this book, do you look at your spirituality and your spiritual journey with your husband, Brian, as something that reflects, you know, the, the facts that are out there, so to speak, or reflects your the way you were brought up and your need you know people ask me why do you still pray and I said well that's how my mother raised me do you got you have a problem with that and of course none of us have a better reason for anything than just that's how we were raised or that's what our journey is or our experience there aren't very big reasons that cover all these questions but I'm asking you Gareth Higgins where your head is at in terms of 
sort of short answer, you know, what do you believe these days? And it isn't rhetorical. I'm not, this is not a loaded question. I'm just asking you as a friend, because yeah. we haven't chatted for a while. Sure. Um, I, I believe that the, that love extending yourself for the sake of the, the benefit of others is part of how we become more ourselves. Hmm. And so belief is a different, it's a different order of importance to me than it used to be. Like, it's always like, what do you believe? What do you believe? Believe the right stuff. Yeah. Um, now it's more practices like prayer and meditation and, and bread and community and asking people to give me feedback and, and encouragement and try to do the same and to try to lead a life of gratitude for the beauty of the abundance in the world and yeah. service uh, through the resources that I have and asking for help places that I lack resources. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not agnostic and I'm not, and I'm not fundamentalist either. Yeah. I don't think, I just don't think those categories matter as much to, to yeah. me as they used to do. And the teachings of Jesus uh, captivate me. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, I, and I and think, I, so know, I, I value and, and love is, it, it makes more of who we truly are. Yeah. And what and, I like about um, what you're saying is there's an element of paradox there, which has been my big thing for the last 10 or 15 years. And which is why, you know, in that, in the, in a little book I wrote a while ago, why I'm an atheist who believes in God was deliberately a provocative, yeah. paradoxical, self-contradictory title, because I find that sure. self-contradiction in myself. And I, what I like about your approach and also that's reflected in your book um, is that paradox is not the enemy. It's just something to recognize mm -hmm. and deal with. I like that about your writing. And that is, you, you know, you, you, it's not a series of conclusions that exclude something else. It's simply saying, okay, here's where I'm at in my journey right now. These are the tools I use. It isn't a question of now this means this other thing isn't true or is true. This is just where I am. Tell me if I've misunderstood you. Ever flung a whodunit across the room on the grounds of incompetent sleuthing? Ian Pierce hasn't, because he's never read a whodunit in his life. He still boasts that he could solve one, though. Listen and learn as this self-appointed crime guru attempts to guide a private investigator to the truth in an original murder mystery written by Tom Knight. Welcome to The Directed Detective. Well, if it's the sense that I have is if it's truly faith, okay. Yeah. If there's if there's actually a faith element to this, then the 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 folks who want to insist that I check the boxes and say that I definitely believe this, I'd want to ask them from a place of curiosity, why does right. it matter that much to you that you need? Why do you need me to assure right. to reassure uh, you? How about we both just try to explore a path of love and see what happens see here? Where that goes, I do yeah. want to. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm noticing you know, some, somebody in, in the chat is saying early abuse, self-love has been difficult for me and I am learning. And I want to say to that person, thank you for the courage to say that here. Yeah. And also, you are not alone. There You're are many of us who are, who, are working, who are working out in your life yeah. uh, from the wounds that we experienced when we were younger. We believe, because I've seen it happen time and time again, that your wound can be a doorway into discovering your gift. Yeah. And often the place where you're wounded is the place where you're most compassionate toward others. Mm -hmm. And that can be something that maybe that can be the beginning of self-love to say, gosh, in the face of everything else, of everything that I have had to overcome, and then the culture culture is sending mixed messages i don't think our culture is all bad or all polarized they're incredibly beautiful things in sure. our in our culture they're incredibly noble in the compassionate things but there's all kinds of other stuff too and there's kind of like a there's there's, there's a debate going on in our culture over which message is is going to be heard the most but of 
the negative messages, to show compassion for somebody yeah. else is a countercultural thing and a brave thing. Somebody else asked, um, what do you do when there are religious people who are trying to take away your civil rights? Um, again, I don't know your story and I don't know what I can say is this, having been a person who's both uh, religious and uh, experienced religious people to prevent my civil rights uh, from being uh, legislated, uh, there's, there's two, what you might, I might call them two time frames in which things happen. One is the immediate moment right now, and then the other is the sweep of history. And I, what I observe in the sweep of history is more lovable in our culture. There is more compassion. There is an expanding circle of, of empathy in the world. Yeah. More people are caring about more people than ever before. And if you're the person who's being targeted in this moment, that isn't necessarily going to be of much comfort to you. And so what I would encourage all of us to do, again, is to find those other people, even a handful of people who you can tell, you can tell emotional maturity when you see it, right? And you can tell when somebody's faking it. Find even one or two of those people uh, who are able to hear you say, you know what, I am at the end of my capacity here yeah, yeah. and I need to be cared for. And there's actually some there's some stuff in the book about how people that help people form circles around those kinds of questions. Yeah. Um, that there will always be injustices to overcome. And there will always be a specific moment that we're in where it might be really painful and really unjust. Uh, and nothing can take the place of meaningful friendships with yeah. people who will support us. What, yeah, whatever is going on legislatively or politically. Yeah, the people who are feeling a little oppressed too, though, and I agree with what you just said. I think that, you know, the arc of justice and so forth and so on. But that said, um, politically in the States right now, with, with the Supreme Court dominated by people who are interpreting religious civil liberties as the ability to oppress other people in the name of personal belief, uh, the, the, the job is never finished. I mean, there's the pri you're talking to the private side of things, but there's a public side of resisting the idea that somehow religion and personal belief gives you the, the option to fire someone who's <laughs> gay or whatever, you know, roll back trans rights, whatever it may be, all in the name of, well, this, this reflects my personal belief. And at least in the U.S., I mean, you're in Northern Ireland where religious tensions have, have you know, you don't need to have that explained uh, to, to anybody watching this, what happened in Northern Ireland. But in the US, unfortunately, in the name of religion now, we have a, a party of people, um, some of whom are Supreme Court justices who really believe that religious freedom, as they understand it, trumps all other people's rights so that you can discriminate openly against someone if you're doing it in the name of religion. And unfortunately, that's going to be where the next public part of the battle of oppression is going to be fought in this country, um, and in, in any case, and I, I know you're aware of that. And in the, but I would say your book is more directed towards our personal reaction and healing and how to deal with that. Um, although you do have a lot of stuff about economics and 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 oppression and other things in it woven through it that I know you've thought through. Um, it's not a so I put it, I, I put it this way: it's not a manual for activism, but. No. I do think that spiritual practices that help us slow down and get more in touch with what I call the core beneath the core, the right. authentic self within, the untouchable, beautiful, extraordinarily strong part that many of us have not even haven't even seen before because it's been covered by this wall that grew yeah. because of trauma. That if you get in touch with that through wise spiritual practices, you'll actually be a better activist. Whatever yeah, and it I is would, your call to do. Yeah, and I would just say, knowing you uh, and where the, the place the book comes from, the you know this is something you're not writing theoretically since I've known you for a, a good chunk of your journey um, in that post-30s period of your life. Um, these are things you personally lived, and, and it's a reason that I would recommend the book um, and, and say that Thank people you. would not only find comfort in it, but there is a roadmap in that to those who have felt either rejected uh, or have had to walk away from something. And I would just say it happens on this Facebook site 
because of my own background, walking away from evangelical leadership position, that there's probably more people here on this site who would actually be the kind of folks that if they picked your book up on an air, in an airplane because someone had left it on the seat and started leafing through it, they would be captivated and want to read the whole thing, and which is what I hope people do. Uh, the book is available, I guess, in all the usual places. And um, um, the title, again, why don't you just hold the book up again, Gareth, so we can see it. Sure, sure. So it's called How Not to Be Afraid. It's available wherever books are sold. And if you go to hownottobeafraid.com, there's more there. You can get a free chapter and there's links to where you can get it. And it is a delight uh, to be uh, in this conversation with you and to be in the 14th or 15th year of our friendship. And thank you for the space that you make for people to transform their fears too. Absolutely. And anybody who comes out of this with questions, please feel free to um, contact me on Facebook or go to my art page, frankshaferart.com and find my personal email, which is frankashafer at aol.com. And um, uh, I will be glad to help you out in any way I can. So I guess that's it, Gary. Thank you, my friends. Yeah, you take care and give a, give uh, my love, please, uh, to Brian. I will do. And mine to Jeannie. Thank you. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com. <laughs>